The following sermon was delivered on October 25th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff preached this sermon entitled The Perils of Practical Atheism on Jeremiah 5, 10 through 19. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from his word. God's word opens with a garden scene, the Garden of Eden. And then God's word closes at the end of Revelation with a garden scene, the New Jerusalem. And in between these two scenes of immaculate, flawless, perfect, well-ordered gardens in which exists perfect praise and adoration of God comes the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And that sin is, as it were, the casting of seed into that garden which doesn't belong there. And out of that seed which doesn't belong, that alien seed, shoot forth sprouts of sin and disorder and madness into the world. And yet, the Bible still ends with a perfect, flawless, well-ordered garden. So what happens in between those two things? Children, have you ever helped your parents with garden work? Have you ever gone out and mom and dad give you directions to pull up here and till the soil there? And, and maybe if you're a bit older and really responsible, you get to do the fun stuff like put this pot into the ground and pour the water on it that life may come forth. Well, that is in no small measure, what God does in between those two scenes, the opening Garden of Eden and the closing Garden of God at the end of history. He is directing his prophets, his church, to go into the garden, particularly his covenant community, the church that renewed humanity in Christ, to go into the garden and to pull up and to pluck up, but then also to plant and to build. And that is what Jeremiah has come to do. In Jeremiah chapter 1, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I delivered a sermon out of chapter 46, but in Jeremiah chapter 1, we have a commissioning of Jeremiah, a call to his prophetic labors and his ministry. And do you remember what he says there? In verse 10, God says, Oh, well, verse 9, I'll back up. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. He repeats that in our passage. But verse 10 specifically, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. And we might think that this is construction language and we wouldn't be far off the mark. There is that as well, the temple being built up through redemptive history, through the history of God working in his people. But the language that God uses here is overwhelmingly language of garden labors. And this is the work into which Jeremiah enters. He enters into that Adam's work, that Yeoman's labors. And then in Jeremiah chapter 2, we have here the reason for it. God says in verse 21, Yet I have planted you, O house of Judah, a choice vine, a completely faithful seed, 
How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign or alien vine or plant? And then we flash forward a couple more chapters to our passage today, and we have an illustration for us of that condemned, foreign, alien, sinful covenant community that God uses the language of a gardener and of a vineyard to describe in chapter 2, to which God has called Jeremiah to confront in chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 5 illustrates for us that condemned church situation initially referenced in chapter 2, verse 21. The demolition of this condemned structure in Jeremiah 5, the plucking up of this foreign plant and the casting it aside is necessary before Jeremiah can commence upon his work of planting something new and full of life. And these judgment texts, if you read through Jeremiah, there are many of them. You must keep in mind, they're always looking forward, therefore, to that planting of something new and life-giving. And because of that, there are notes even of hope, of looking forward, of eager anticipation of what God is doing among his people. Chapters 4 and 6 foretell the imminent plucking up by exile what 586 B.C. is going to bring. They don't yet know that it's the Babylonians who are coming, but the people of Judah are being warned again and again that they are going to be plucked up out of the land and removed from there, from that place where God has planted them. And then chapter 5 gives the details of the depths of Judah's depravity as practical atheism, idolatry expressed as practical atheism. Practical atheism must be cleared out of the garden of God, out of his covenant community, before life can be planted and brought forth into full flower and bloom. So what I seek to show you today, therefore, is by the word of his power, God himself shall prune from his church the dead growth of practical atheism. By the word of his power, God himself shall prune from his church the dead growth of practical atheism. And this is a pattern that is repeated again and again, not only in scripture, but also in church history, in redemptive history of God's dealings in history with his people. Because one of my purposes today is to show you this, because God is as active in our midst right now as he was in Jeremiah chapter 5 as he was in Paul's day, as he was when Jesus of Nazareth was walking on the water and trooping about Galilee and Samaria and Judea, heralding forth his kingdom as the son of God, the utterly unique God-man, the gardener, par excellence. So we'll look at this under three headings. The problem of practical atheism specifically in verses 10 to 13, God's power over practical atheism in verses 14 to 17, and then finally God's proclamation against practical atheism in verses 18 and 19. So diving in, I think it'd be very helpful to define what I mean by practical atheism. 
And we'll take a close look at how Jeremiah lays this out for us, how the Spirit of God lays this out for us through the prophet Jeremiah in verses 10 through 13 as we see the solution to that problem, the nature of that problem, and also the expression of that problem. So first, note that God opens up with the solution to the problem in verse 10. He says, go ye up, go all ye all up through her vine rows and destroy. We're not sure who he's commanding to do this, but he has a group of workers to go into the garden and to clear out the dead growth, as it were. Do not execute a complete destruction. You see, God has purposes for this garden, but the obstacles need to be removed. Something needs to be destroyed. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. Ah, here is the problem. The solution here of tearing away and destroying and casting aside, it tells us something about the issue, what's bringing us to Jeremiah chapter 5. And that is that the problem itself is an obstacle to God's purposes. The obstacle must be removed like dead growth in a garden, like weeds in a flower patch, sucking away life from otherwise healthy plants. These, uh, this foreign growth... These branches that do not belong to the Lord, they need to be removed. And they are branches, as we know from the rest of Jeremiah, of unbelief and idolatry, and then specifically lived out in Sabbath breaking. This is a point that mustn't be missed. You see, what, what do we confess when we, uh, when we consider the fourth commandment? Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy sons, nor thy daughters, thy manservant, thy maidservant, uh, thy donkey, thy ox, the stranger that is within thy gates. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It, we're confessing that God has a present and active claim on something in our lives that otherwise we would think belongs completely to us. The Westminster Divines acknowledge this. In, uh, in the confession of faith that, that really is the distillation or summary of our belief statement, do you know that the people who wrote that, students of the word far surpassing anything any of us have achieved, recognized that without the Bible, we wouldn't know that one day in seven belongs to God? We wouldn't know that he has an active, present, urgent claim on that area of our lives. So as you study the Bible, consider that. Consider God's activity there in our midst. That he's doing something, and he has reasons for why he gives us certain instructions. But then, there's pro the problem that crops up is an obstacle to those purposes of his. The problem's nature, then, is detailed in verse 11. Having seen that it's an obstacle in verse 10 and that God is now moving against it, we see in verse 11 the nature of it. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. What does it mean to deal treacherously with someone? Have you ever had anyone break a promise to you? Perhaps a brother or sister, a business partner, a student, a teacher, a husband, a wife, a parent? What does the breaking of a promise of an agreement indicate to you and to me when someone does it against us? It indicates treachery, the breaking of a relationship. You see, this problem that's come into the garden is a problem of, of relational dimensions. 
God has entered into relationship with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and both of them, not just one or the other, have dealt very treacherously with him. And then he stamps out with declaration of the Lord or declares the Lord. This would come as a shock to the people of Judah. You see, they perhaps were a bit smug. They thought that they were on God's right side. They looked up at their northern neighbors in Israel, those 10 northern tribes who had been taken away into captivity at this point in Jeremiah's ministry. They, they were long gone. They thought back to them and thought, yeah, I mean, they had high places and golden calves and they did all kinds of crazy things and every single one of their kings were wicked. But, you know, we're not that bad. Sure, we've made some mistakes, but we have King Josiah. We have King Jehoshaphat. We have King Jehoiakim. We, we have reversed the trend of idolatry. We've stopped doing that stuff. Oh, but God sees it to the heart. And he says, I know your hearts. And I know they are just as wicked, yea, even more wicked than the hearts of those people, Israel, to the north. For you are just going through the motions and you live any old way you please. That yes, even the southern kingdom of Judah has dealt very treacherously with the Lord. You know, the Hebrew construction there, in case you're curious, very treacherously, it's literally treacherously, they have dealt treacherously with me. There's, they couldn't have been any worse in God's eyes. They had committed cosmic treason. You know, um, when the founders of this nation launched the revolution against the English, each one of those men, by signing the Declaration of Independence, uh, were signing, as it were, their death warrant. They were committing treachery against Good old King George. And if they had lost the war, you know what would have happened to them? They would have all been killed. So when God comes against his people in this passage, and he says, you have dealt with me treacherously, you have committed treason, he's laying out the gravity of their sin. And he's putting before them the prospect of death for treason, for covenant treason. So what's their response to it? And here's where we see the problem's expression. We see the practical atheism. And the problem is, I will contend, particular, unique to people who claim to believe in God, who make that claim, but by their deeds, tell a different story. Look at verse 12. They have lied about the Lord and said, not he, literally he is not, or he does not. Misfortune will not come on us, and we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. This is the expression of idolatry that I'm calling in this sermon practical atheism. Practical atheism here and I believe in every age, is simply disbelief, a rejection of the truth that God is actively involved as covenant Lord and Father over his people, yes, over all creation. We'll contrast that with a couple other issues. And track with me here, kids. I'm going to throw out some big words, but I think you could track with them. You have apathyism 
And that is just, I don't care if God exists or not. And then you have pragmatic atheism. And that's the belief that it is better for me to believe that God doesn't exist and to behave that way because my life will be better. But then in the middle of these two sinful belief statements comes one that I say is much darker because it's one that creeps into the life of the church. And I pray we will be shielded from this particular attitude. And that is practical atheism, which says God exists, but he doesn't really care what I do, what I think, what I say. But what do you do behind closed doors? Do you believe that God is there watching you? Your parents might be out of sight, out of mind, but, but what about God? He sees all that you do. You know, what, do you, what kind of books do you read? What kind of entertainment do you consume? What kind of music do you listen to? You know, all of these questions. Do you do all things before the face of a God who watches? Who watches? The practical atheist says, you know, he may or may not exist. He may or may not even be watching, but he's not going to do anything about what I do. He may or may not have a claim on the seventh day of the week or the first day of the week, but he's not going to do anything about it if I don't give it to him. That's the attitude of the practical atheist. And brothers and sisters, as we gather here tonight, search out your hearts. Consider where in your lives you perhaps have allowed this idolatrous sin to creep in. This sin, not just of neglect and not just of laziness or apathy, or even pragmatism, but the sin of denying the truth of God as active in your life. He's active. He's active to condemn, but he's also active to save. And that brings us to our second point then. We've looked at the, the, the solution to the problem of practical atheism, the nature of it, the expression of it, denying that truth that God is there and he cares about what you do with your life. And now we move into the power of God over practical atheism. Notice in verses 14 to 17 uh, that there are two statements here. You have behold in verse 14, and then again, behold in verse 15, continuing down through 17. And so the first behold statement there, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, that title, that appellation of God, the God of angel armies, he who commands the armies of all nations even to accomplish his will in his providence. That first behold statement lays out the power's nature set within a context of conflict, a battlefield of competing truth claims. It's a conflict of true versus false about God's relationship to his creation. And the answer is his word. You know, what's interesting is the problem was expressed in the words of the people of Judah speaking treasonously against God. And now the solution, the power over that problem in verse 14 is expressed as words. We could translate this, therefore thus worded the Lord, the God of hosts, behold, you have spoken this word. He says to the people, you all have said this, what's contained in verses 12 and 13. And uh, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth, Jeremiah, 
fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. So the emphasis here is on the word of God. God's word and his truth will incinerate the falsehood that has been cropping up in the people of Judah, in his covenant community. And when you and I confront his word and our sin runs headlong into it, his word will always win. It never fails. I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this was the, con- the conviction of the reformers in the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, by the word of God alone. And that's our conviction here. This church is a sola scriptura church. But it goes beyond merely the message of God. I, I hate to say merely the message because that in and of itself is powerful and true. But consider what John says in John 1 1 through 18. Who is the word? The word is not some abstract truth. The word is the living truth, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes, and like a mighty warrior on a battlefield, he strikes down all falsehood, all treasonous statements against his father, against his kingdom, and he brings in the victory of truth. I was just reading today Daniel chapter 10 as part of the McShane reading plan, and you have this great explanation of the mighty warfare in heavenly places of of good versus evil, of falsehood versus truth, and the truth always wins, always wins. This word, if you note here in verse 14, was put into Jeremiah's mouth, just like in chapter 1, verse 9. And it's like a fire, as Jeremiah will repeat in chapter 23, verse 29. And so then the deadness of practical atheism and idolatry that it expresses, it's not only pruned out of the garden, but then it's cast into a garbage heap where it's burned up and it ceases to exist entirely. These are the stakes set before us tonight. Our sin, it will be cut out, not only of ourselves, but potentially cut out of the church entirely. We don't want to be dragged away with it. Because the fate of these things is utter annihilation and being burned up and condemned and cast out of God's life-giving garden. That's the narrative into which Jeremiah is speaking today. Because you have spoken this word, O people of Israel and Judah, behold, I am making my words in Jeremiah's mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. We see this expressed after Christ's earthly ministry and the rejection of the gospel by the covenant community, by the Jewish nation. And I read from Romans chapter 11, Paul's lament over that, but also the promise of forbearance in God. And note, God doesn't sit idly by. The second behold uh, statement then in verses 15, continuing through verse 17, shows, uh, expresses the power of God over the problem of practical atheism. Note verse Verse 15, behold, again, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food, your sons and your daughters, your flocks and your herds, your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish and destroy with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Notice that final phrase there. 
in which you trust. God, again, is going right to the heart. The practical atheist might say with his lips, God exists, and I'm going to be careful not to do the things that will make him upset. I won't have high places. I, I, won't, uh, I won't let anyone know about the thoughts in my mind. I'm, I'm going to do what he says. But then in his heart, he says, but I'm really trusting in my power, my fortified cities in this case, my money, my wealth, my intelligence, my acumen, my own righteousness. The practical atheist whether he believes God exists or not is irrelevant. He's an idolater at heart. He's made himself his own God. That's the problem highlighted there at the end of 17, and it brings that judgment that verses 15 to 17 are showing us, the expression of God's power. You know, this has deep roots in, in fact, in a much earlier passage. The subtext, or, uh, the subtext of this passage in Jeremiah 5 is Deuteronomy 28 which contains the covenant cursings of God's people. Notice what Moses writes to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting at verse 49. He says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. You notice how similar that is to our own passage. A nation from afar whose language you don't understand. A nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat, same exact word in Jeremiah 5 for devour, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. Your fortified city shall be destroyed. Who also leaves you no grain, no wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. Shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. And then he continues. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain and so on and so forth. You see not just the fact of what's going to happen to Judah, but the very language is exactly parallel to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And all of those curses are the result of committing treason, of dealing treacherously with God, of sinning against his holy will. This is covenantal, but it's chastening, not condemnation. What do I mean by that? Condemnation is how God deals with the unbeliever. He takes them and he says, you stand condemned unless you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Chastening is very similar, and it's how God deals with his own people. He says to them, you need to get your act together, so to speak, and I'm here to help you do that. Listen to my voice. Hear me and repent. And sometimes the Lord will, in his chastening, leave us to various worldly woes and trials and difficulties such as is expressed in this passage, but which you know in your own lives. When you have lost hope and faith and trust in God, how have you responded to him? Has it always been easy and pleasant? Have you ever railed against your creator? Have you ever pushed back against him and said, why would you do this to me? What are you doing now? 
Oh, you're getting in my way. My way. Have those words fallen off your mouth? And then just in the moment of them, because of some trial or difficulty, you realize, oh, I haven't been following his way. I've been on my way. Well, brothers and sisters, there's good news. That God who sees into the heart is committed to rescuing you from that sin. Just as surely as he saved you at the first and called you into his covenant community, he comes again as a tender, loving father to reform you according to his word, to purge away, to prune and to burn up all the sin and impurity in your life. Look at verse 19, or 18 rather. Yet even in those days, those days of exile, those days of trial and destruction, when everything which you hold dear seems to be coming crashing down around you, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. Notice the shift here from verse 10. In verse 10, the agents of God's destruction were an unnamed, faceless group of men and workers, agents to go up through the vineyard and to cut and to prune. But here in verse 18, God comes back to his people. He circles back and he says, I, I, me, will not make you a complete destruction. See, the forbearance of God, his grace and his mercy poured out in this, his proclamation. We've considered the problem, the problem of idolatry and practical atheism, how it's an obstacle, how it's relational, how it's treacherous and expressed in words. We've seen God's power over it, how he's sure to come in judgment and in reformation to purge it away, to wipe it out by the power of his word. And now we see his proclamation against it, against this sin problem among his people. And his proclamation starts with a promise. Now it ends with a threat, and we'll get there. But let's dwell a bit on the promise, shall we? This promise of forbearance, I will not make you a complete destruction. You see how this reverses everything which they had tricked themselves into believing? They had tricked themselves into believing that God was detached from them, that he stood aloof and afar off, perhaps watching but never moving, never going to do anything, that they could act with impunity against him, pursuing their various lusts and gratifications, and he comes now and he says, all of this stuff that's happening, I'm doing it, and I will not make a complete destruction. He's emphasizing to them that you're wrong. I am actively involved. And because I'm actively involved, you have hope. You will not perish. There will not be a complete destruction, but rather a purging of what needs to be cut out so that life may come again. Let's take you back to the garden image. There's dead growth there that's robbing life and energy and vitality from what could be a full blossoming fruit and flower. And what God is promising to you, and that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is that he shall come to bring life and life abundant. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in the Father, there's life. In the Father is the Son. And in the Son comes the Father. And we meet with the Spirit who draws us ever nearer. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is actively involved? I don't know what exactly each of you are wrestling with tonight in terms of trials and difficulties and sorrows and woes, but life in a fallen world is not easy. It's often vain. We often convince ourselves of many lies and, and pursue our various lusts and, 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 and what we desire in our flesh, and we run into all kinds of problems. But God doesn't stand aloof and afar off, but he comes and he rescues us. That rescue is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we receive him by faith. Notice that at the root of their practical atheism was a disbelief. And so at the root of God's solution is a belief here that he is who he is and who he has said he is and a belief that he will not make a complete destruction of you, but rather he is sifting you like wheat so that you will bear fruit for him and experience life abundant. This is a fatherly chastising. In Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12, we're warned not to despise the discipline of our fathers and not to despise the discipline of our heavenly father because it's for our good. And so this proclamation in verse 18, the gospel in germ in seed form, as it were, being planted in our hearts is a great promise to you that when he comes, and he has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's coming again, that when he comes, he comes to bring life to his people. Isn't that what Jesus testifies about his own ministry? He says to his disciples that he hasn't come to judge the world, but the Son of Man has come to save the world. We were reminded this morning in, um, in the worship service I attended that at the very end of the service, the pastor declared, and it was like a balm to my soul, Jesus saves sinners. So if you're here tonight and you're a sinner, and either as a practical atheist or something, something else, do you believe that about the Lord Jesus Christ? That he comes to save and he scours away impurity in order to save. Cast yourself on him. Come unto him if you're weary under your sin and burdened with woe. And he truly will save you. Just as he's promised here. But then he ends with a threat. In verse 19, it shall come about when they say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in a land that is not yours. The verse or the word there, serve, we might rightly render worship. Again, that garden of Eden was a place of worship. And the sin that crept in was first and foremost a transgression against the true worship of God. And here, God uses that similar language of service and worship to levy a threat against his people. But notice how it's different than what's come before. Something has changed because Jeremiah is speaking of the future. After everything has happened, the threatening is more retrospective. He's looking back on the captivity, which is to come. Remember, Jeremiah's a prophet. He's kind of dealing with realities outside of time and looking at the broad scope of history. But one of the salient features here, the really important features of this exchange is the change in their words. Before they had confessed that God will do nothing 
And now in verse 19, they say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You see what they've learned there? They've learned that God does something, that God does in fact come, and he comes to save and to scour, to uproot and also to plant, to destroy and to build up. And they're not left without an answer. You see, this is all discipline from the Father. As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in a land that is not yours. And in this statement, God is preparing them to be renewed in their relationship with him, for that covenant to then be reestablished. Jeremiah sings, as it were, a song of praise in chapters 30 and 31 when he speaks of the new covenant. And Jesus comes, and he establishes that new covenant in his blood. Next week, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and I want you to think about that this week, of what that represents to us, that God hasn't left us in darkness of sin and slavery and our own um, rebellion and treason against him, but rather he has come, he has saved us, and established anew a covenant with us that is written on our hearts. And we rejoice in that, and it's a cause of much rejoicing. Even as this warning this fatherly chastisement is ever before us of insofar as our hearts deviate to the left or the right, insofar as we stumble and, and forsake God and, and fail to believe that he is who he says he was and that he's living and active in us, then he surely shall come and chasten us. It's hard to call this merely a judgment because it's so expressive of God's faithfulness. And great is the faithfulness of God. But as a judgment text, and this certainly is that, this is a warning to God's people. And we must take it as such that God is active. Now we must stand ever repentant before him and turning to him. You noted perhaps how I... When I was reading verse 3 of chapter 5 here, I said, they have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent or return. That word repent could be translated return. And when Jeremiah uses that word, he's talking about covenant renewal, of returning to God and, and, and being in covenant with him. When you sin, you turn away and you break covenant, but yet God is always standing at the ready to renew covenant with us. And in fact, he moves toward us to make that happen. And Jeremiah 5, 10 through 19 here furnishes us with a diagnostic tool, particularly the leaders of this church, our overseeing session, Dr. Piper and the other men, for evaluating the spiritual vitality of, of the people, for answering that question that I posed in my introduction, what does a condemned church look like? What does a, an overgrown garden look like? Jeremiah 5 gives us that picture. But it also answers for us the question of who is the gardener? Who is it that uproots the dead growth? Who is it that brings new life? Well, it's God. And in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. He is the gardener. He has come. He has come and dwelt with his people, taking on human flesh himself to reconcile us to God, to make us alive. Do you rejoice in this? Is this the heartbeat of your devotion? 
Is this the, that which fuels your repentance? Not merely a fear of consequences, but no, rather a cherishing of the Lord Jesus Christ who is at work in you by his spirit and word, which burns like fire all of our sin away. By the word of his power, God himself shall prune from his church the dead growth of practical atheism, of idolatry, of treason. And in so doing, he comes to save. Not merely to condemn the wicked and ungodly, but no, to save those sinners who would repent and seek after his righteousness. And in so doing, brothers and sisters, he will reveal to us in ever greater measure in his word, his holiness, his purity, his splendor, his truth, his power, and his concern for the repentant and contrite of heart, his goodness. His dear ones, destined to resemble and reflect his glory, he shall save. He personally and actively clears away that debris of death to make room for new life because he is active and in his word there is power. All of that is denied by our world. It's in fact denied by our dark hearts apart from him. And yet he is wholeheartedly committed to bringing forth life out of you and out of me. So return to him where you have been afar off and rest in him where you are burdened down with woe. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.